Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to introduce Dr. Phil Boyer from Ireland, who uses LDN in his fertility clinic. Thank you for joining me, Phil. Hi, Linda. Could you tell me when you first heard of LDN? Well, I heard about naltrexone as a fertility treatment. I was doing my training in fertility treatment in the United States under the uh, training with Dr. Professor Thomas Hilgers in Omaha, Nebraska. And he talked about using naltrexone to help couples with premenstrual syndrome, miscarriages, and, and fertility problems. But it was a pretty new kind of a treatment to him, and he hadn't really got very good results with it. And it was more on the edge of something that was more experimental, and I never really got into it. And that was back in 1995. It was a good, uh, I suppose, seven years later, maybe a little bit more when my sister told me that she was wanting her husband uh, to take low-dose naltrexone. My sister's uh, Marianne Bradley, married to Noel Bradley, and she wrote the book Up the Creek with a Paddle, where she describes the experience of putting Noel on a low-dose naltrexone. And before she was encouraging to do it, she said, did you ever hear about this drug? And I said, well, in fact, I did. And whatever benefit it might be, it certainly wouldn't do any harm. But that was my first uh, incidence of hearing about the possibility that you could use naltrexone in, in the way that a lot of the LDN community use it uh, for the treatment of autoimmune conditions like multiple cirrhosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and so on. And it was curious to me. I didn't uh, say, well, it's impossible, or I didn't say, well, um, it definitely would work. I just thought, well, that's interesting. It's, that's something new for me. And in my own clinical practice, I didn't consider using it until I heard Robert Joyce, uh, an MS sufferer, describe his experience of using low-dose naltrexone personally. And he described the way that it lifted his profound fatigue in a way that placebo simply couldn't, and how when he was on the medication, his life was transformed for the better, how he could work and function and manage his rheumatoid, well, I think he had rheumatoid-type symptoms as well as MS, as far as I know. So he was so much better with that clinically, it really impressed me. Uh, and I heard him talking in Galway, gosh, now if I could put a year on it, I'd be doing well, but it's roughly <laughs> seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that really appealed to me. And I said, you know what, the next time I see somebody with an autoimmune condition like that, I'm going to give this a twirl and see, see how it goes. So I started to, to use it in clinical practice for some of my patients who were coming to me with infertility and also had an autoimmune condition at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the relief of symptoms that Robert described, um, I began to witness that in the patients that I was treating. And I didn't at that time suspect that it would have any uh, direct benefit uh, on fertility. I was just interested in helping to relieve the negative symptoms from their autoimmune condition. One woman in particular who had rheumatoid arthritis got dramatic relief of her symptoms and within a very short period of time achieved a successful pregnancy. 
And I thought, well, that's interesting. And with more and more experience, I found that this had an additional benefit directly for fertility as well as helping for a range of autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. So it was really through my own clinical experience and a degree of trial and error of trying the medication that I was able to observe its impact. And like any medication, it's never 100% effective. And in my clinical experience, I would say that for autoimmune conditions, it probably, you get some benefit, I would say, about 75% of the time, maybe 80%. Uh, but there are people who are resistant to it and get no benefit at all. Um, now, if you're dealing with placebo, you would anticipate about a 30% uh, success rate or relief of symptoms. So this is significantly way over and above uh, just a placebo effect. And probably the commonest positive symptom that I would observe across the range of autoimmune conditions and subfertility is the relief of fatigue, where significant levels of fatigue are dramatically improved as a result of taking low-dose naltrexone, usually within a short period of time. And I simply don't do anything very complicated. I just say, what's your energy level out of 10? If 10 out of 10 is normal energy, give me, give me a number. And mm -hmm. people would say three, two, four. And then I'd say, they'd come back for review after three months of treatment. And I'd say, give me a number. What's your energy now? Is it the same? Is it better? Is it worse? And invariably, the majority would say, well, I'm up at a seven or an eight. My premenstrual syndrome is gone. The negative symptoms I had have improved significantly. And I see this time and time and time again. A number of people who tell me, I've got my life back with this. It's been life changing. So we talk about the, the naltrexone. Some people say to me, you know, is this drug addictive? And I say, yeah, it is. It's, um, it's addictive for the doctors who prescribe it. Because once you experience the, this tremendous professional satisfaction from somebody with a significant medical illness who tried a whole range of different medications unsuccessfully, and you go for this cheap generic drug that has little or no side effects, and although it's in the realm of being considered experimental because it's not licensed for these conditions, when you see the benefits that people get, these profound life-changing benefits, uh, it is addictive for the physician and in terms of you want to prescribe it again and again and see those benefits again. Um, so in that kind of a way. But it surprised me because when I observed the kind of benefits that many people were getting, I expected um, in a short period of time a large number of doctors are going to start prescribing this. And surely within a short space of time, this drug is going to be widely recognized and accepted. And it surprised me more than a little bit, I have to say, when you observe how profoundly beneficial the clinical effects are and how safe the medication is and also how inexpensive, it's quite stunning to observe how reluctant uh, doctors as a profession are to begin prescribing this. So that, that part has been a major surprise to me. I really did not think um, that it was going to be this far down the line, that we're still struggling to convince doctors. And I suppose uh, when I stopped to think about it, we're entering an age of evidence-based medicine within the, the profession where unless medical treatment is published uh, as part of a randomized controlled clinical trial where it's double-blinded with a placebo, unless you get that type of data being published, 
a huge amount of doctors will refuse to believe that that any particular medical intervention could possibly be of benefit unless it's gone through that type of a rigorous assessment. And I think that's very detrimental for our profession to have that degree of blinkered thinking and that degree of tunnel vision. I joke about it a little bit and I say it's like fundamentalist thinking that you get these it's no disrespect intended at all, but it's just the parallel is that with a Christian fundamentalist would have the idea that sola scriptura, unless something is written in scripture, it's impossible to be true that all truth is sola scriptura. And I'm kind of thinking, well, you get this kind of thinking within medicine that it's sola journala, unless it's published in a journal, it can't possibly be true or work. And it's even gone to the stage of sola randomized controlled trial in Jornala that it's got to be a very high degree of evidence that I think is a little bit unreasonable to to expect as well. That it's not the only evidence that we have um, to go with by published trials, that uh, there are other ways of obtaining evidence. And especially when you consider how ineffective many of the medications are for autoimmune conditions, when you consider how significant the potential side effects are, and when you consider the great cost involved in the medications, it's like the competition isn't very intense for naltrexone because it's not like we've really solved these autoimmune conditions in a, in a way that naltrexone really can help. That's a lot in one go. It's something that I guess I feel quite passionately about. And the other thing is, when it comes to naltrexone, it's not the only thing that'll help with an autoimmune condition. I think it's really important that we look at other things that will complement the naltrexone to help it to work better. And in clinical practice, I would have observed that if we take into account diet and look for things like food intolerance and eliminate antibody-producing foods from, from uh, somebody's diet, and in addition to changing diet, if we also consider supplements with things like vitamin D or else just sun exposure and things like omega-3, which you can get from your diet if you eat your oily fish or uh, get flaxseed in your diet, then um, complement these things as supplements, diet, and naltrexone in addition to stress management. And if you do all of that, uh, you'll find that you're going to get better results than just relying on naltrexone on its own. So, uh, so naltrexone is great, but it ought to be complemented with these other strategies and other additional strategies that are, are being looked at to have an open mind about trying additional things, especially for our non-responders. Um, because I think when you're dealing with somebody who fails to respond to naltrexone for whatever their condition is, that um, if you ask the question, well, why is naltrexone not working in this case? Because the norm is it should work and there's something Preventing it from working, I guess, with uh, with clinical experience, we could come up with additional strategies to, to help people do better. The interesting thing when it comes to autoimmune conditions is that I've seen practically every autoimmune condition uh, respond to this. I've dealt with things like fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, lupus, and any other autoimmune things you can think of, Sjogren's syndrome. I've seen a large range of autoimmune conditions respond very favorably to low-dose naltrexone, uh, especially if we take that strategy that I mentioned where you complement it with dietary changes as well as supplements. The interesting thing is the root problem is the immune system is attacking one's own body. So regardless of the range of autoimmune conditions we're dealing with, 
uh, the vast majority of them will respond to low-dose naltrexone, which is no surprise when you consider that these conditions respond to immune suppression with steroids or with your cytokine inhibitors uh, that um, you sort out the immune system um, and then you're going to get the clinical effect. The main difference with naltrexone is it's taking on a completely new strategy because the presumed mechanism of action of naltrexone is that it, it serves to correct the immune dysfunction, that the problem is that the immune system is underactive and that the naltrexone stimulates the immune system to activate the suppressive part of our immune system to stop the body attacking self. Whereas all these other strategies with steroids and cytokine inhibitors, they work to further compromise and impair an already malfunctioning immune system, an already suppressed immune system. And with further immunosuppression, then although you can get short-term benefit, you're taking long-term risks that you increase your lifetime risk of developing other autoimmune conditions, um, as well as potentially increasing your lifetime risk of developing cancer. I had one patient who had MS um, who was coming to me for fertility treatment, and she didn't want to take the uh, low-dose naltrexone, and she went for some other immunosuppressive type of treatment, and I was very sad to learn within the space of two years, she also developed breast cancer. Now, breast cancer will happen, but it ha you have to beg the question, gosh, this is a young woman of childbearing age. Could the immunosuppressive therapy have had some role in causing her to develop the breast cancer? And we can certainly say, well, it may have done. And if that potential risk is there, and that's a life-threatening uh, condition that you're giving to somebody that's really brings up a whole load of additional problems that really we should be looking at safer treatments if at all possible. And fine, if these things fail, then maybe consider, um, well, as a last resort, we have to look at these other routes. The question that everybody always asks is, you know, is it okay to take LDN if you are trying for a baby? Once you're pregnant, is it okay? And I always quote the fact that you use it in your fertility clinic Right. I saw a patient just today uh, pregnant with her second baby in her program, and we just did her, her pregnancy scan, and she has a 15-month-old boy at home. And she took naltrexone right up till 37 weeks of her pregnancy because clinically she was endorphin deficient. Now, the clinical signs for endorphin deficiency, one of the clinical signs is a personal or a family history of autoimmunity. Uh, where you have any of the range of different autoimmune conditions. But in addition to that, what we look for from a fertility point of view is, do you suffer from premenstrual syndrome? Do you have endometriosis or polycystic ovaries? Do you have low energy levels or fatigue, low mood or anxiety or brown bleeding during the menstrual flow? That would be our, our list, that we, our checklist. And if you have two or more of these conditions, then you're clinically endorphin deficient. Now, she had five or six of these clinical criteria for endorphin deficiency, and she felt so much better. Her energy levels, her premenstrual syndrome, uh, her mood, her anxiety, everything was so much better. I said to her, you know what? We've stimulated your endorphin production with low-dose naltrexone. You are now functioning like you should function. All these negative symptoms you had are now relieved. If we stop your naltrexone during pregnancy, then those negative symptoms come back. You become endorphin deficient, and that's not good for your health, and it's not going to be good for your pregnancy. 
So in clinical practice, we've observed the uh, impact of being endorphin deficient during pregnancy and the negative impact that has for the pregnancy. So not only is naltrexone safe to take during pregnancy, pregnancies do better, mother does better and baby does better if she continues her naltrexone throughout the pregnancy. You're less likely to miscarry. Baby is more likely to be a normal birth weight and you're less likely to deliver prematurely. But in addition, an, an added benefit that you get is you get a very good-tempered baby. You get, get a baby that sleeps well, uh, that has a good appetite, that doesn't uh, get sick very often. And it's because the feel-good effect that you're getting from all these happy endorphins buzzing around your body is transmitted to the baby where you're calmer, you're more relaxed, and they don't get their colic and they don't get all these other negative things. So I mentioned this to the patient today and she said, yeah, our kid is just brilliant um, <laughs> in all those respects. And that's what they observe themselves. And I, that information is frequently volunteered. So because she was asking, should she stay on it again? I said, absolutely. I had a discussion recently with a, a professor of obstetrics regarding this issue because I was dealing with a twin pregnancy that she was clinically profoundly endorphin deficient and uh, we had no choice but to continue her naltrexone because when we were trying to taper her down, her progesterone levels fell and her pregnancy wasn't going so well. So I explained to the professor in clinical practice, we've given this treatment to well over 100 women in my own practice and that the pregnancies go better there's a 16-minute video clip that I have on our website at fertilitycare.net explaining, um, comparing uh, pregnancies in women when they were on uh, steroids for their immune-modifying treatment compared with naltrexone and how they did so much better when they took naltrexone instead. So, yes, I would admit we don't have the published data. Yes, I would admit we don't have extensive uh, studies and yes, I would admit we don't have definitive evidence to say uh, that this is definitely safe and that it definitely is, is beneficial. But we've got lots and lots of clinical experience, successful pregnancies, healthy babies, happy babies and healthy, happy mothers. So I really have not seen anything negative at all. And ultimately, what's What's giving the benefit is the mother's own endorphin levels reaching the levels that they ought to reach. And if you pay attention to the, to the symptoms, her symptoms are so much better and we're, we're just improving her, her physiology to help it to function like it ought to. So it's hard to conceptualize how could this possibly have a negative effect. The endorphin blockade is short-lived when she, she takes the naltrexone at night. It's out of her system pretty quickly, and she responds by increasing her levels. So I, physiologically, I can't understand how it's going to cause any harm, and my clinical experience would support that. Out of interest, Professor Thomas Hilders in the United States, he would have cause to give high-dose naltrexone for different conditions, and he has given naltrexone at 100 milligrams safely throughout pregnancy and breastfeeding without ill effect to mom or baby. Now, 100 milligrams is more than 20 times higher than the dose that I'm putting people on. So when I suggested to him, I was a little concerned about the low-dose naltrexone. Is it really safe? He just laughed and explained the kind of doses he was using. <laughs> and he said to me, I don't know if it'll be any good, but it'll definitely be a lot of better. It definitely won't do any harm, he said. So I was quite reassured when I, I took into account his clinical experience with high-dose naltrexone that uh, the drug itself is, is totally safe. 
and I can say from my own experience that we get tremendous benefit from it as well. Are there many other clinics using low-dose naltrexone for fertility? The area of fertility treatment that I work in is called fertility care and natural technology. And I've given presentations to the physicians that are trained in this uh, type of fertility treatment. And a good number of them are embracing low-dose naltrexone when the clinical criteria are significant and it's clinically indicated. Um, they give it, uh, they observe that the, the negative endorphin deficiency symptoms disappear with naltrexone treatment and conception rates are better. So there's a growing number of doctors in the United States, United Kingdom, Ireland, and now Poland, uh, where the NAPRO technology is, is starting to be more widely practiced. And it's a technique that we call, it's like restorative reproduction, where we use a range of medical and surgical techniques to restore optimum function to the reproductive system. And NAPRO technology, we believe, is the best form of, of restorative reproductive medicine. We had a conference in Ireland recently with about 120 people attending it from all over Europe um, explaining these concepts. So it is it is very much taking hold, uh, the low-dose naltrexone concept, among other things that uh, we're doing as well. I would have a degree of frustration about the pharmaceutical companies that are making low-dose naltrexone because... There was one company in particular based in the UK that will remain nameless, I guess, to avoid anything legal mm-hmm. in that. But one of that crowd producing a more commercial version of low-dose naltrexone and charging outrageous money for a drug that is a generic drug that is inexpensive to make and they're shamelessly charging huge amounts of money, 10 times higher than what it actually cost to the suppliers in the United States to make it. So it should be in and around, uh, in Ireland, 30, 35 euro for a month's supply. And these were requesting 300 euro for a month's supply, which is, is very, very infuriating. Now, where that's coming from, I never really got into it to look at. Um, I know you've put a listing for Dixon's Pharmacy, where they make the liquid low-dose naltrexone, and they supply it at about 15 pounds, which is absolutely fantastic. And kudos to Dixon's Pharmacy and thank God for them and uh, we need more people like them to make these uh, inexpensive generic medications uh, more widely accessible to people in a way that's affordable. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's quite disgusting to see this shameless profiteering that some pharmaceutical companies engage in um, at the expense of people who are suffering. It's a grassroots movement. What's hugely interesting about this is it's the patients who are the clinical beneficiaries of the treatment that are the largest proponents of low-dose naltrexone, that the benefits that they've obtained clinically, they want those benefits made available to other people who are suffering like they are so that other people don't have to wait to hear it by uh, frantically searching the internet and that they want doctors to take note of this and start prescribing it. And what's hugely interesting is that it's coming from the patients. And the patients uh, are trying to teach the doctors. And as a profession, doctors are very resistant to that, that it's like, well, we've done all of our medical training. And who are you to tell me how to treat your medical condition? And it's it's a real, real challenge. But we do have things to learn from our patients um, by, by listening to, well, what's working for them? 
it's going to be something of a battle and you're doing fantastic work uh, with the LDN Research Trust to raise awareness for it and to try and get more and more doctors prescribing it and raise awareness about this. But, um, you know, you can get so enthusiastic with naltrexone that we do have to temper ourselves a little bit because there are non-responders mm-hmm. and to, you know, to at least have people's feet on the ground and say, well, you know, you may, you may not respond to this, but at the very least, it will not do you any harm. And uh, there's a reasonable chance that you could respond well to this. And people have taken it for over 20 years without damaging their livers or their kidneys. And they've been observed very closely um, in the United States. And there are thousands and thousands of people who have used it at this stage. Anyway, I, I really do hope that as a body, more and more physicians will embrace this and start using it. It's really encouraging that Professor Jill Smith um, has published her phase two clinical trials in using low-dose naltrexone. She's from Penn State University in the United States, and she has shown it to be hugely effective for treating um, Crohn's disease, uh, which is autoimmune, uh, so the principle should hold. If it helps with that autoimmune condition, um, it's, it's very likely to help with a host of others. And this is a very good published study that she has, and it's on the LDN website. I'm sure you put a link on your website as well. And... We need more hard data like that, but there are very few altruistic people uh, dedicated like Professor Smith to get that good data out there to convince our skeptical medical community. And it is disturbing that, that we're, we're so slow to see what sits in front of us and observe the benefit firsthand ourselves. Um, that's, that's more than a little baffling with modern medical practice. You, I remember you telling me about Candida. Do you still do that? As, uh... Well, I do the Candida test, but again, I've been doing the Candida test for with Cambridge Nutritional. It's an expensive test. It's about 60-odd pounds sterling to do that, and lots of people are negative for it, but it's still worth checking. And the only problem is I don't know how sensitive the test is. So if somebody has um, intestinal candidiasis, There are several different ways uh, where people attempt to diagnose that, and all of the the ways that people attempt to diagnose that are controversial. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at a blood test for these IgG and IgM candida antibodies, which may not be a sensitive enough test to identify everybody who has a candida problem, but at least if it is positive, I tend to give anti-yeast treatment. I give fluconazole treatment for up to two weeks with probiotic supplements and I find that helpful to to treat the condition of this leaky gut and digestive problems and then difficulty absorbing low-dose naltrexone. That people who are not responding to naltrexone may respond once we give them um, a good dose of uh, candida elimination treatment like that. Um, so it's an area that's worth looking at. I think it needs more research um, and to be certain about it. So there's a friend of mine, a doctor in California, who knows more about this than I do. So each time we meet up at conferences, I'm trying to find out more about what she's doing um, for diagnosing and treating candida to, to help with overall health as well as fertility. But especially for the non-responders to naltrexone, that's one curious area that I think will at least help some. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have got the problem, do you have to watch your diet indefinitely, once, even though you've had the treatment for it? 
You see, the whole thing about leaky gut and food intolerance is a whole new area that's developing as well. So I tend to, my, my strongest preference would be to give a, a two-month treatment of, of, of antifungal treatment and combine two different types of antifungal treatment combined with probiotic supplements for three months. And that will clear up most of the, of, the, of the candida problems that you've got. And by giving the probiotic, the hope is that that would take over and colonize the bowel with the, the healthy flora. But we don't know for 100% sure. So, but that's what I do in clinical practice. And lots of couples who are prone to recurrent candidiasis or thrush, once they go for this really extensive treatment, then they're far less likely to get the, the thrush back again. And they're more, more likely to respond more favorably to their uh, naltrexone if we're trying to deal with an autoimmune condition that was poorly responsive previously. But then the diet, no, I don't think somebody should need to stay on a very restrictive diet long term. I think there could be a lot more flexibility with it if you deal with the root cause um, in the first place. That I don't think somebody needs to stay, stay on a candida diet for life, um, but I would say have a generally healthy diet and less of the problem foods, but to have them on occasion would probably be okay. That's really helpful. One clinical story, I had two medical students sitting in with me and I was telling them how great naltrexone is for endometriosis um, and that I would treat single women with endometriosis who have all the negative symptoms. We were just having our 11 o'clock tea break and the very next patient right on cue as if I had planned mm -hmm. it comes in. Uh, in her mid-30s, a single woman who had um, three previous operations for endometriosis uh, before coming to me, she was told, really, you're on the verge of needing a hysterectomy for this. We can't keep operating on you all the time every time this flares up. She was on the naltrexone for three months. Uh, so, And I said to her, so um, how has the naltrexone been for you? And she just looked at me and said, I, I, doctor, I feel like I'm 20 again. And I just looked at the two mm. medical students that were sitting in, and I gave them a nod, and I said, there's naltrexone for you. And she said, uh, for in her case, her all of the nasty premenstrual syndrome, her profound fatigue, all the clinical um, uh, features of endorphin deficiency, but also her very painful periods and uh, bowel symptoms all dramatically improved. Mm. Um, so for endometriosis sufferers, it's an absolutely fantastic treatment. And not everybody is that dramatic, uh, so she obliged uh, uh, and came in on cue to really impress the medical students. But she and I had to admit afterwards, not everybody responds as well as that. But at least 50% of the time for endometriosis, we get that type of relief. And with endometriosis, usually you need good surgery as well. But so again, that's a huge area with endometriosis that is largely untapped. It's not just about fertility, it's about helping women's health as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experience with us, Phil. I really do appreciate it. Let's hope that this encourages more doctors to prescribe LDN. Great. You're very welcome, Linda, and best of luck with your work. Thank you. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, Linda. L-I-N-D-A at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well. <laughs>